First Peter chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 11. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll conclude our study of this letter from Peter. The year was 1898. The British Empire was expanding throughout Africa. And the British were attempting to complete a railroad across Kenya. One of the big obstacles was a project that included building a bridge over the Savo River. Thousands of workers were spread out over multiple camps for about eight miles. All these workers that had congregated to build the bridge. And then the lions came. Two of them. Legendarily uh, named one the ghost and one the darkness. These two lions killed with what seemed to be an unnatural desire. More than any average lion would kill. The attacks came at night under the cover of darkness. Workers were dragged from their tents and killed in the fields surrounding the river. As the number of victims mounted, the construction project came to a halt, and the British crown began to figure out resources to send to Africa to deal with the lions that were inhibiting their railroad project. They were hunted for months, and after nine months of terror, both lions were finally killed after a hundred and 35 people were dead. Now that we know that lions are not merely cats, we can understand why Peter would call us to readiness in our pilgrim journey and place that readiness and that watchfulness in the context of being on the lookout for a lion. Listen to Peter, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who writes to us in chapter 5 and verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. As pilgrims, we must be ready to resist the enemy. It is not enough for you to gather on Sunday and worship with God's people. There must be a readiness day in and day out because the devil, as a roaring lion, is seeking to devour. The ghost and the darkness terrorized thousands of workers for nine months. 
The Bible says, the devil, our enemy, is the prince of the power of the air. This world and its system, this is his domain. And as we press into it with kingdom light, we should expect opposition. We should expect danger. We should expect a foe who is capable, who is cunning, who is powerful. And so we must be ready to resist. You see, resistance is essential to kingdom living. All throughout the scriptures come the commands that tell us to to arm ourselves and ready ourselves to resist the world, say no to the temptations, reject the philosophies, the traditions of men, as we heard in Colossians 2. Resistance. We follow Jesus. And we resist anything and everything that exalts itself against what we know of him. Pilgrims must be ready to resist. So the question is, with this paragraph before us, what do we see in these verses that answers the question, how do I resist such an enemy? How do I resist I think you can follow along in the text and see how Peter demonstrates for us what it would look like to resist this enemy of ours. We begin in verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. How do you resist the enemy? Number one, be aware of him. Be aware of your enemy. This comes to us in these two commands. Be sober-minded. And the idea here is is really the idea of self-control or how we might say focus. Because to be unsober, the opposite, to be drunk, is to lose control, to lose our focus, to lose the ability to to be clear on things. So Peter says be sober-minded, and it's not, he's, he's speaking nothing of drunkenness. He's, he's simply addressing how we should be able to tune out other things and to be focused on the danger at hand. So be sober-minded. Now, please do not misunderstand the Bible to think that Christians now can have no fun. We can't go on vacation. We can't have downtimes. Don't plan a 4th of July picnic, right? Because we're supposed to be sober-minded and always focused on this spiritual warfare. No, that would be be a a misunderstanding of sober-minded, of what it means to focus on the danger that we face spiritually. God has given us all things freely to enjoy, so we enjoy Sabbath rest and we enjoy hot dogs and hamburgers and days off and all those things. But whether we're vacationing or in the ruts and routines of life, whether we're picnicking or studying, whatever we do, we should be mindful of our enemy, the devil, who sets traps, hidden traps, who is cunning and wise, who disguises himself though the epitome of darkness can make himself appear as an angel of light, so great is his deception. 
so, so bold in his temptation that knowing God had created two perfect human beings without a sin nature, had no reservations in approaching them with outright lies about the goodness of God. So bold in his ways and confident in his tactics that he had no qualms about addressing the very Son of God with temptation, with the full expectation that he would prevail. Peter says, you had better be focused. You'd better have your A game on, we might say. Because this is real. You have an enemy, the devil. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Be alert. Awake. And these two commands imply the obvious risk of being rather inattentive or even asleep. Jesus told Peter on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. Jesus told Peter, you have an enemy and he's coming after you. Just a few moments later, they get to the garden and Jesus says, you'd better watch and pray. Because of what he had already told them, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. And now just moments later, we find Peter and the disciples asleep. Is it really possible that a follower of Jesus Christ could hear, be sober-minded, be watchful, on Sunday morning in the gathered worship and by Sunday afternoon and evening already have their foot stuck in the trap of the devil because they were inattentive and asleep? Peter would say, let me tell you, Yes, it's possible. Jesus told me right back there, and he could point to the path from Jerusalem down through the Kidron Valley up to the Garden of Gethsemane. He could say right there in the, in the valley, he told me the devil was coming after me. And then we sat right here in the garden, and he said, watch, be watchful, be prayerful, focus. This is a real battle. And Peter, James, and John, the elite, the inner circle of the disciples, couldn't watch and couldn't pray, and they were asleep. So I think Peter is speaking with a, with a distant memory of his failure to be watchful, knowing full well that the devil was coming after him. And so these commands, be sober-minded and be watchful, are justified with an explanation. What is it? Well, you have an enemy. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be watchful, be sober-minded. Why? First of all, because your enemy is deceitful. He's called your adversary. It's often a legal term. If you showed up in court, there'd be two tables, one for the prosecution and one for the defense. Whatever one you're sitting at, the other is your adversary. The Bible says you are on God's side, you're a follower of Jesus, but on the other side is the devil. And he doesn't argue the law or the truth, but rather he is characterized by deceit. He's called the devil. 
the rude, it means he's the accuser of the brethren. He, he's leveling charges at them, or he's leveling lies at them. So his false accusations are designed to deceive. Genesis 3. Has God really said? Is God holding back from you? Is God not good to you? Know that the devil will be trying to get you to doubt God's goodness this week. The question is, will you fall for it? Or will you be sober-minded and watchful, knowing that this age-old trick from Genesis 3 is still being used on us daily? Your picnic would get rained out and you doubt God's goodness let alone the real hardships of life. It's one of his favorite tools of deceit and accusation, accuse God of not being good to deceive you. Be watchful. But this isn't just a battle of wits or words. This is a battle with weighty consequences because Peter goes on to say this adversary of yours is not just deceitful, but he's also incredibly dangerous. And he draws on this analogy of the lion. And we can all understand a lion's roar. We've probably seen them up close somewhere along the way at the zoo or in a big photograph, and you've seen their big teeth and their big paws. But Peter wants us to focus on really the outcome of the lion's prowl, the outcome of the lion's roar, and that being the devouring. The text reminds us that our enemy is dangerous. The devil is like a lion seeking someone to devour. At its biological, natural kind of zoological level, that's not a pretty picture. Lions devouring. You've probably seen the, the pictures of red-faced lions, and not red-faced because they're embarrassed, but red-faced because their fur is drenched in the blood carcass they're devouring. That's the picture. It's not just the lions sunning themselves out in the grasses of Africa or on the rocks at the zoo. It's the devouring part that Peter is wanting us to think on in all of its gruesome details. Because if you've seen the effects of divorce and the brokenness of pornography and the deceit of lies and the danger of envy that breeds outright hate, then you know something of how the devil devours people by getting them to believe his dangerous lies. Sin is no small matter. And so Peter is urging us to deal radically with our sin today. Do not excuse your anger anymore. Stop yielding to fear. Say no to the next invitation to look at pornography. Don't believe that a lie can be white, but rather that it is always very dark and devil-like. Be sober-minded about this stuff. Because 
Whatever the stuff is that we're being tempted to dabble with is the stuff that ends in devouring. And in order to make sure that you don't miss the danger, this text refers to this enemy, this roaring lion, as your adversary. Peter makes it personal. The devil hates you. He hates the way you mother. He hates the way you bring your family to church. He hates the way your marriage represents anything of Christ's love for us. He hates it. He hates you. And if you really get it through your mind that the devil hates you, we'll begin to understand what it means to be aware of my enemy so that I will resist him. If you could see the devil after his serpent appearance in Genesis 3, if you could see the devil as Adam and Eve are driven from the garden, if you could see the devil's glee as Cain takes up that stone or that knife and kills his own brother Abel, if you could see how the devil rejoices in our ruin, we would understand that I should best be aware of my enemy in order to resist him. The devil will be glad to start you down a path to ruin today. Refuse. Resist. Verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking to devour someone. You resist him. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Number two, how do we resist the devil? We're anchored in our faith. What does this mean? To resist him firm or anchored in your faith. Well, I put it this way. This is my trust in God's truth. So God has said something. He's revealed something. He's told me who he is. He's told me what he's done for me, what he will do for me. I have what God has revealed, what he said. The question is, do I believe it? Adam and Eve had heard from God in the garden. The question is, would they believe God or would they believe this serpent who shows up, casting doubt on him? Do I trust what God has said? Do I believe what he has revealed about his character, about his ways, about his faithfulness? Do I believe the psalm that called us to worship, that he's faithful in all his words and kind in all of his works? Or do I look at what others have and think God sure is kind to them. Look at the money they have and look how we live. And that discontent is actually an expression of disbelief. I'm not putting my trust in God's truth. It means I won't make the same mistake as Adam and Eve. They should have said to the serpent, stop. Stop making it sound like God is stingy. He's good. So this week, find actual words that God has said and believe them. 
Oh, I know in other contexts we might call that a Bible reading plan, a time of devotions. Today we're just calling it find actual words that God has said and believe them. You see, you need talking points. You need something to say to the devil when he's saying, hey, maybe God isn't good. What are you going to say? You need those talking points, but they can't be your own. You remember Adam and Eve had talking points, but they stood there at the tree thinking, you know, it, it does look pretty good. And, and maybe it will make us a little bit wiser. They were listening to themselves talk, but what we need are God's talking points. We need his truth, and we need to say it. So God's actual words become our ammunition. Resist him firm in your faith. He's not saying, oh, just say you're a Christian. The devil doesn't care if you're a Christian. What the devil wants to find out in pressing you is, do you really stand on God's truth? And Jesus gives us this example in his temptation. The devil comes to him not with bizarre lies, but with subtle twistings of God's truth even. And Jesus shows us we must be people of the word and we must use God's talking points to be able to say, you know what? That sounds like envy in my heart. God's given me everything I need beginning in Christ. So I'm, I'm going to reject the devil's lies that I need something more. I need a nicer house, a nicer car, that I need to be married, that I need whatever we fill in the blank with. But we need God's actual words as our talking points. That's what it means to be anchored in your faith. So what do you believe about God? This is no classroom experience no exercise of academics. This is your hope of resistance in battle. You think of soldiers in their classroom learning, and it's far different than their experience of carrying a 100-pound backpack and crawling through mud and working their way through desert villages and constantly on edge with their hand on their rifle Classroom exercise is one thing, but the experience of battle is another. And Peter is saying, by asking, what do you believe about God? That's not just classroom exercise. This is real life. This will determine whether you resist or whether you're the antelope that is drugged down by the lion. Our resistance depends on being anchored in the faith. So put your trust in God's truth. Number three, how can we resist the enemy? Look at the rest of verse nine. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. When you study World War II, you see a collective effort of resistance in the countries that were occupied by the Nazis, by Nazi Germany. They would move supplies around. They would steal or counterfeit ration cards. 
There are stories of them hiding the downed pilots of the Allied forces and moving them on escape routes. They would conduct guerrilla warfare, communicate enemy movements to the Allies. It was this vast web of friends, international friends that were on the same team. In Poland, it was called the Home Army. It was the partisans in Yugoslavia, the La Résistance in France. All of them together were collectively called the underground. They resisted the enemy. They drew hope and courage from the reality of a vast web of connections, all trying to accomplish the same thing. They were not alone. And Peter says, neither are you, pilgrim. There you are, duking it out in spiritual warfare, in the daily routine of whatever God has called you to, and it's hard, and it feels lonely, or at least isolated, and yet Peter here says, wait a minute, resist him in your faith, knowing something. So whatever you know is somehow helping you in your faith to resist the devil. And what he says you should know is that you are not alone in this. That you are a part of a vast web of those who are resisting this world and its culture. And there is hope and courage that is drawn from this collective effort. So Peter is essentially saying, resist the devil, but do so by reminding yourself of this. I am part of God's advancing kingdom. I'm just doing my one little part here. So I'm going to plug away here raising these kids. I'm going to plug away at the workplace in the midst of Gay Pride Month. I'm going to plug away in my neighborhood as the only Christian and everyone else seems as lost as can be. I'm going to keep doing my little part right here to resist the devil because I am part of an advancing kingdom. Peter says, remind yourself often that there is a brotherhood all over the world. We're pressing on right here in Kansas City. But we're doing that in cooperation with a brotherhood, some of them serving in Ghana, Africa, some in the Stung Treng province of Cambodia, some in the darkness of Alaska, and in every other corner of the world, there is the brotherhood, the underground, which is more and more becoming evident, the advancing kingdom of God, so that from every tribe of this planet, from every people group, from every nation, there will be God's people brought to his name. And you are a part of that. So pilgrim, yes. Exile, yes. But Peter says, in that pilgrimage, think big. Think that you are putting your little piece of the kingdom puzzle on the table, and it is rounding out the big picture of what the resistance is accomplishing, the overthrow of the forces of darkness. Be encouraged by God's church. You are a part of the advancing kingdom. 
celebrate the other Christians in their churches that you know. We all have people that we know that go to other churches. And if the gospel is being preached there, the Bible says we, like the Apostle Paul, can rejoice even if there are a host of imperfections in our mind with those places. I assure you people think we have ours as well. But that's all right. We're going to find our place in the big picture of that brotherhood of churches that are trying to get this right and they find this confidence and this courage and this hope in the fact that we're doing our part in this advancing kingdom. How do we resist the enemy? Number four, be certain of God's promises. Look at verse 10. There's much to see and there's much of which we can be certain here. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is certainly true in the long run that God will do these things for us as this life concludes or Christ returns and he takes us home. There is also an element of it that is true daily. The inward man being renewed day by day, ready again to engage the enemy to fight the good fight. In our pilgrimage, we resist the devil by being certain of God's promises. of God's time after you have suffered a little while. I think it's helpful to mark that because it won't be long before we see another time stamp in this verse. We suffer a little while and then the God of all grace who has called you to what? His eternal glory. Not the only time the New Testament is going to compare temporal suffering with eternal glory. Momentary affliction, eternal weight of glory. So learn that lesson. We've seen it elsewhere in Peter's letter. Suffering leads to glory, but they're not equal. Equal amount of suffering matched by an equal amount of glory. No, it's suffering for a little while, a little bit, if necessary, he says in chapter 1 but it produces for us an enormous weight of glory. So bear in mind God's idea of time when you feel like your suffering is long. And I'm not saying it shouldn't feel long because it will feel long at times. But know by faith that in God's time it is but for a little while. Secondly, we should be certain of God's grace. The God of all grace will do what he said he will do. The God of all grace. Why is he not just the God of grace? I think sometimes our our minds need to hear that he's the God of all grace. That there is no good out there apart from God. That there is no grace apart from God. The God of all grace is on your side. Be certain, number three, of God's calling. 
the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. We speak of this, as Peter has already several times in 1 Peter, as the effectual call of God, where he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. He was dead, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. By his Holy Spirit, at some point, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, God called your name and said, come forth. And Ephesians 2 says, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins were made alive by God who is rich in mercy. This is God's calling. Your salvation was begun with the voice of God. We considered this in the Sunday school hour this morning. The great hope of you sharing the gospel is not you trying to rouse someone out of their deadness, out of their drowsiness of sin. No, that's the work of God who will call. But he may use your voice this week to announce that good news, the truth of Jesus Christ. So speak. You who have been called to his eternal glory in Christ, speak up. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Give a defense for the hope that is in you. Be certain of God's calling. This is the gospel that Peter highlights. And some of you still struggle with the certainty of the gospel. We label it this question of assurance of our salvation. But where has God been unclear about what he will do? Where has God been foggy? Where has God left any room for doubt in our minds? He hasn't. Our doubt and our struggle comes from our own way of life and thinking. Our own way of life because we can cast doubt by living like the world at times. And our hearts condemn us, 1 John says, because we're not living the way we should. But even when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, he says. The certainty of what God has done is greater than any weakness we can imagine. So be done with the questions of assurance and recognize that what God has done, nobody can mess up. We know this from John 10. Jesus says, you, you're in the palm of his hand, and no one can pluck you out of his hand. God called. God snatched. And nothing can change that. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ, Paul argues in Romans 8. And there's nothing, and he includes the devil and spiritual powers. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Be certain of God's calling. He's called you to his eternal glory in Christ. In Christ. Christ is the reason you woke up a Christian this morning. Christ is the reason you will wake up in heaven one day. You are in Christ. So I wanted us to sing today, yet not I, but Christ in me, there in lies the difference between you and your unbelieving neighbor, family member, friend, and co-worker. You are in Christ. 
And now, as light, you shine in the darkness and you say, come, meet the one who can free you from all the bondage of sin. Be certain of God's promises, his time, his grace, his calling, and his purpose to restore, confirm, strengthen, establish. There is no legitimate way to distinguish those words in the Greek language. You look up their English definition or their Greek definition, and they cite the other word for their own definition. It's as if Peter just was on a roll here. He was just so excited about the certainty of the pilgrim mindset that he's saying you should be certain of God's purpose. He wants you to be all of these things, restored, confirmed, strengthened, established. The picture here is not a pilgrim slinking down the the path, scared of every shadow along the way and, and just hoping to make it to the end. No, this is one who is standing firm, eager to make known that he is a follower of Jesus Christ. This certainty that flows out of 1 Peter 5.10 is an overhaul of our perspective. It's faith building. This verse tells us that everything that we will face in this coming week is intentional it is controlled, it is purposeful, and it is along by grace to a certain and victorious end. So should we gather next week, the story should be that amazing grace that taught our hearts to sing is the same grace that is going to lead us safely through all of the stuff of this week and eventually all the way home. Peter is saying, listen, this pilgrimage is worthwhile. God has a purpose in it all, and he's accomplishing that purpose. And your momentary affliction, though you suffer a little while, is going to be met with eternal glory in Christ. So resist. Resist with a certainty of God's promise. Finally, how do you resist the enemy? Number five, be mindful of God's power. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Elsewhere, the New Testament writers would say, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Be of good cheer, Jesus told his disciples. I have overcome the world. Paul in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us so. We are confident in God's power. To him be dominion. We don't use the word much. We might use the word dominate. Oh, our team dominated them in the fourth quarter and we came back and won. Well, that's the same root there, this this idea of dominion, the ability to control all things. Now, even when we use the word dominate, we might generally mean they were better or a little stronger. Dominion is this absolute control. Not just in boasting, but with the ability to back it up. So the psalmist would boast for God, and he would say, Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. It's dominion. We look around, 
We see what's on the news and we think, but wait a minute, what about this evil? What about this evil? What about this horrific tragedy? What about 50 years of legalized abortion? It looks like evil is prevailing. Yes, read the Psalms. And again and again, God's people are troubled by this because our eyes only know the little while. We can only see the right now. We don't see God's big picture and his plan. We think the vast majority of the world is in blind unbelief. We think the world's being taken over by Islam. And then you hear these reports that surely must be exaggerated of the church's growth in other countries of the world. And we have to at least stop and think, what if the gospel really does work and the kingdom really is advancing? What if it's true that even the devil and the gates of hell can't stop the kingdom of God? What if our God really does have dominion? What if our God rules over miscarriage? What if our God rules over divorce and abandonment? What if our God rules over cancer and disease? What if our God rules over the, the ones who would celebrate the taking of life in the womb? What if our God rules over political parties? What if our God rules over aging, self-inflated egos of Russian dictators? What if Ukraine isn't absolute cosmic chaos? What if our God reigns? Suddenly, being a pilgrim isn't so bad. Because I'm simply taking my marching orders from the one who sits on a throne and does whatever he pleases. So much so that as we heard from Psalm 2 in the prayer, that he laughs at those who would even think they are opposing him. The great cry of the gospel in that psalm is, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish. Thanksgiving wells up within us when we realize we heard the voice of God call us and we came and worshiped. We kissed the son as the treasure that he is. And there is now no condemnation to us because we are in Christ Jesus. His dominion over us now is a celebrated dominion. We are gladly his slaves, slaves for righteousness. Resist the devil, mindful of God's power. The devil, a formidable foe, an impressive force to be reckoned with. He's the prince of the power of the air but he is no match for the one who has dominion over all things. They say, you should not run from a lion. I've heard that said of even mean dogs as well. Two reasons. One, you're not as fast as you think you are. 
two, it seems to trigger in the lion and the mean dog the instinct of hunting down and making the kill. I don't know if this works for lions, and I've never even tried it on bad dogs. Seems to make sense. If you're ever in that situation, don't blame me for any outcome if you try it, all right? The only thing I'm willing to stand behind is God's word, which here says, in the face of our roaring lion, the enemy, the devil, you're not supposed to turn and run. You're not supposed to try to get away from him. You're supposed to resist him in your faith. Stand your ground. Let him roar. And then shout him down with big truth about the God who has already defeated him and made a spectacle of him at Calvary. Victory is ours, Peter says. Yes, the devil is real and dangerous, and he's a force to be reckoned with. Beware of his deceit, but you, in Christ, can resist him, firm in the faith. That's our confidence this week. We need not believe his lies again. We need not follow that path of sin again. This week, we need not grieve the Holy Spirit again. We can resist our enemy. Peter says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Stand your ground. You can do this because you're in Christ. So, Heavenly Father, take these words and motivate us for the fight that lies before us. Ready us for the onslaught of temptation and lie. Anchor in our minds your settled truth so that every lie will be seen for what it is, so that we will quickly recognize anything that exalts itself against the excellency of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Help us to respond to your word this morning with an urgency that reflects both the danger of our enemy and the dominion of our Lord. Give us grace, for you are the God of all grace, to be watchful, and courageous as we resist the devil and press on toward home. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.